Welcome to episode 23 of the unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown podcast, the podcast where we discuss and examine the 75 greatest Marvel stories chosen by Marvel readers and published by Marvel Comics itself. The countdown continues every Wednesday until June 1st, 2016. And joining us once again is our most prolific guest host, Mr. John M. Wilson. Welcome back, John. Hello, it's good to be back. Ready to talk some comics, some really classic comics now. I think these are the oldest ones I've discussed with you so far, but not the oldest ones that we will discuss. No, no, no. Scratch all that. We did like Marvel Comics number one way back in the day, didn't we? Yep. It's been a while. Yeah, it has been. I've slept since then. Oh, that's good. Yeah, we also let him out of the basement. He had students to teach. Yeah, you know. I've got to wrap up the semester and get them all ready for their break. But yeah, today we're talking about some really exciting comics from, I don't know, the golden age of Marvel, if you want to call it that, which is really the silver age of comics, but uh, the the, fan, the original Fantastic Four trilogy, Fantastic Four numbers 48 through 50. I'm excited. Oh, yes. The ones that were uh, written by Stan Lee, penciled by Jack Kirby, inked by Joe Sinnott, colored by someone who unfortunately does not get credit in that period. Lettered by Artie Simic and Sam Rosen. Edited by Stan Lee, with cover dates ranging from March to May 1966, and release dates ranging from December 9th, 1965 to February 10th, 1966. And as we mentioned with the episode number, this came in at number 23 in the countdown. For those who need something a little more specific, this is the story arc that first introduced both the Silver Surfer and Galactus. And those are, you know, classic Jack Kirby creations that have gone on to be a major part of Marvel. Silver Surfer more so, I think, than Galactus, although Galactus certainly has had his share of big stories. Multiversal, in fact, since he interacted with the Ultimate Universe as well. Yeah, as a direct result of Age of Ultron. Yes. Yeah, this is a really important story. It's also kind of a a cornerstone of the Jack Kirby Stan Lee run on the Fantastic Four. They went for their just over 100 issues, and this story is sort of sort of a central focal point, both in number and in, I think, quality of, of their mm-hmm. stories. They, 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 have, they have a bit of a height here, with a lot of good stuff on either side. Yep, and it's interesting. It also shows the age and the era this was in, because I don't think we would see stories structured this way in today's world. If you look at the popular hero entertainment of the decades coming before this, it's arguable that the most popular and best known was actually the Superman radio show that had a broader reach than even a lot of the comics did. And this has a similar structure to that. If you've listened to that, and if not, I recommend checking out the Old Time Radio Superman show podcast hosted by Adam Graham. He's doing a great job over there, releases two episodes a week. I I, I talked about a little bit back in my Golden (laughs) Age Superman podcast, but I haven't done two episodes a week for that one in a while. (laughs) <laughs> ever <laughs> yeah but no adam has i think the podcast at the time of this recording is up to the 1947 or 48 episodes wow i should get the, i'll definitely be the giving that a shot yeah yeah he's doing a, a pretty great job there but one thing you'll notice with the radio show is if you know say a particular story is 15 parts when you get to part 15 the current story wraps up about halfway through the episode and the first part of the next story begins. So they never wanted to give the listeners a clear jumping-off point. There were serialized stories, and you didn't really want to miss an episode, or you'd be missing something, even though they did recap it. But this has a similar structure to it. So we call it the Galactus Trilogy, 
But there's really only two issues dealing with this story. The first half of issue 48 is wrapping up the previous story, and then the second half of issue 50 is starting the next one. So it's a two-issue story spread out over three. One might accuse you of saying it's decompressed, but it's not, it's not that at all. No. No, it's just where the stories break in terms of the page count. Instead of ending the story at the end of the issue and saying, well, next time we got a new story, it can end partway through. Because collected editions were really not on anyone's mind at the time. The pendulum had really swung the other way from what comic story structure was generally thought to be, which is, I mean, before the 60s, your comics were almost universally multiple stories within one book, whether that be 64 pages for a dime in 1940 or 32 pages for a dime in 1960, you had multiple individual stories. Or if they wanted to be, what's the word when you try to do something big? <laughs> I don't know. Are you trying to achieve something that's more than usual? I don't know. When you want to do something awesome, you can you can take your different stories in one book and make them different chapters of ambitious different chapters of one story but then marvel had moved that well yeah marvel had moved that into single story issues with no breaks in between and then they went into continued stories where you'd have something happen in one issue that wasn't fully resolved in that issue and it would be resolved in the next issue until by this point in fantastic four it's open-ended storytelling it's very much a serial no part one, part two, part three, just open-ended stories. There's nothing in, in the title or um, the artificialness of the structure that says this is part one, two, and three of Galactus. It's just, this is where that part of the story begins in 48, and this is where it ends in 50. And, and it's you know kind of obvious that they're changing directions by that point. But you can really just follow the Fantastic Four on an open-ended thread for, for several decades of issues here. Not decades like years, but decades in issue count. Mm-hmm. It is a very unusual style. Even for the day, not all comics would do this. And a lot of this because of the distribution. At the time, my understanding is that it was very difficult for retailers to order a specific title. They would order almost like a Marvel Comics assortment. So Fantastic Four and Avengers, at this point Fantastic Four, were the top-selling books. So they were the ones that everybody would get. But the lower tiers, not everyone would necessarily get it. So they shied away from serialized storytelling and some particular books because they were getting complaints from readers that their retailer might carry issue N, but not N plus one. And it was hard to get the whole story. So of course there were exceptions when you have your anthology titles. So say your tales of suspense that was shared by Iron Man and Captain America, they still wanted to have more than 10 or 12 pages per story. So those were serialized, but it seems, I believe if memory serves that the first real experiment in serialized storytelling at Marvel when they were Marvel and not Timely or Atlas. But the first time that they really tried serialized storytelling was actually in the Hulk issues of Tales to Astonish. Yeah, I'll agree with that. Because in those, which were then followed by, I think, the Captain America stories in Tales of Suspense, those very much had the feel of a Saturday serial, where you come mm-hmm. in and you get a chapter of a story. You, you get a quick recap of what happened last time, and, and then you're left with a cliffhanger at the end. And and those were, yeah, they were serial. I feel like the storytelling between those 10 or 12 page chapters and the Fantastic Four was kind of different, though, because the chapters were so short that the story threads would sometimes get a little bit lost or or the feel of, of how the story was supposed to flow. And a lot of times when you're reading serial, that the time factor feels strange. I'm currently reading a run of Captain Britain that has Captain America in it. 
And those are eight page chapters each week. And time, there's not a whole lot of time going by. You get a whole lot of stuff seems to happen in the small amount of time because they want to have something interesting in each chapter. Yeah, it does lead to something different. But, you know, rather than talking about what else was going on in the industry. <laughs> we, we, we have an actual focus here. Yeah. Why don't we start talking about issue 48 and synopsize the coming of Galactus? Who's the bald Roman guy on the cover there? That would be Uatu, who had first appeared, I believe, in issue 13. It was the one that introduced Red Ghost and his super apes, or as Stephen Lacey frequently refers to them, the stupid apes. Yes. I, I can hear him in my head. Red Ghost and his stupid, stupid apes. <laughs> well, this is The Coming of Galactus, which, of course, picks up in the tail end of the Inhuman story when Maximus the Magnificent, a.k.a. Maximus the Mad, a.k.a. Maximus Boltagon, the Black Bolt's brother, is trying his desperate bid to rule the Inhumans as king. And, you know, it takes a little bit of effort that's going to synopsize this part very quickly because it's not really a part of the story that landed on this list. Yeah, it's wrapping, up, wrapping up the last, what, three or four issues worth of arc. Yeah, but effectively, this is where we finally get Black Bolt and Maximus face-to-face, -face, and Black Bolt takes a stand with Medusa's help. They are able to undo his technology and defeat him, but then yeah, they're getting a little bit cut off here. Adelon, the whole sanctuary for the Inhumans, gets cut off and sealed which is a major issue for Johnny, who's in love with one of the Inhumans who is still within that barrier. And then from there, we get introduced to the Silver Surfer, who is famously not in Stanley's outline. Uh, for those who aren't familiar with it, at the time, Stanley was incredibly overworked. There was a, an issue in the 50s when a scientist, who we later learned falsified his data, Frederick Wortham, published The Seduction of the Innocent, blaming comics for the evils of the day's youth and the juvenile delinquency, which seems to stem from the fact that his own son had become a juvenile delinquent, and of course it couldn't be because he was just a poor father. There were, you know, trials, went to Congress, the comics industry as a whole took a serious beating in the public eye, and Stan Lee was editor-in-chief at the time, and he had all of his writers and artists working six months ahead of schedule because he didn't want to ever miss a deadline. He was paranoid about that. As a result... When they were taking this major hit and people stopped buying comics that were on the stands, when the publisher found out that everything was six months ahead, he laid off everyone but Stan. Because, you know, Stan, being the owner's nephew, had a little bit of protection there. And when the storm that came out from Seduction of the Innocent lasted a little bit longer than anticipated, they used a method of comic creation now known as the Marvel Method, even though it had been used beforehand, where instead of having the writer write the full script and dictate what would be in it, and the artist would have little or no creative influence. They would just kind of draw what they were told to draw. Instead, Stan Lee was the writer of all books, and probably the reason he wasn't the artist is because he's not really a, that great a penciler, at least not enough to be in the public pages or published pages. So he would outline all the stories, hand them to artists who were good enough storytellers that they could take a two-page outline and draw a 24-page story from it, and then Stan would do another pass and fill in the dialogue. And that's the way he worked with Ditko. That's also the way he worked with Kirby. And Jack Kirby here decided, well, no, here's the outline about, you know, Galactus coming. He's this major threat. Well, how does he pick the Earth? He came up with the idea of this Herald, the Silver Surfer, who would come out and find the Earth. Okay. So it's actually kind of famous when it came in, these pencil pages, and Stan Lee's looking at them going, well, who's this guy? <laughs> Which is interesting because Stan Lee would then glom onto the Silver Surfer 
as sort of a mouthpiece for Stan Lee's own worldview, or at least exploring his, his, you know, more pacifistic leanings and feelings about humanity in the Silver Surfer's own, own solo series. But, but just to reiterate the point from earlier, we're on page seven, the last two of six panels when the plot for the Galactus trilogy starts. Oh, yeah. And just to lean a little more weight to it, we see the Skrulls who are freaking out because, oh no, there's the Silver Surfer. And at this point, I think these are Marvel's only repeat villain, uh, repeat aliens. Yeah, I'm trying to think if we'd seen the Kree twice or not. Believe we had. At least we saw the Kree technology on Earth right before Ronan showed up. But Yeah, there would have been the Sentry and Ronan. And that's about it until Captain Marvel has his debut. Yeah, but anyway, so this is happening. The skies go on flame. So that whole, like, skies turn red during crisis, that starts here. <laughs> yeah, so the Fantastic Four are out, and they're trying to figure out what's going on. There's, you know, panic in the streets that they help reduce to some degree. Probably panic in the sky, too. Yeah, so Reed essentially locks himself in with his scientific devices, tells the others, leave me alone. Sue barges in because she wants to know what her husband's up to and meets Uatu, the Watcher, who they'd already met, and find out that, yeah, the fire in the skies and the the rocks surrounding Earth are there because the Watcher's putting them there to protect Earth because the Watcher only intervenes when there's something very, very vital going on, like every three or four months in terms of the publication <laughs> schedule. You know, so only pretty much every time he appears. The Silver Surfer arrives and sets up some sort of beacon. The thing hits him and... He doesn't really react because whatever, the thing can't really hurt him, and his job is done. We get another montage of equipment in space. The stars are opening, and Galactus shows up with pretty much the same penciling that we see today. With one with one significant exception. The, the penciling has a big old G on his chest. Because in space, Galactus starts with a G. Yeah, it is a little more stylized now, but... The G actually persists in later iterations Does as well. Does it really? Okay. I thought it disappeared. It's, it gets a little more rectangular, but you can still see it later. But the point you were going for was the coloring. Oh, yes. We are used to Galactus being purple. Here he is primarily red and green. Yeah. It's weird to see this. It, it, it changes immediately next issue. But the coloring scheme on Galactus is strange. Yeah. When we get to it, if this be doomsday which is issue 49, then he's already predominantly purple. And in the last panel of 48, he's colored as having pants. And in 49, he's colored as having a skirt. Yep. Or possibly a metal kilt. Not sure exactly what we call it, but yeah, very much bare legs. Yeah. One of those covers the hips with a bit extra in front to cover anything else. And yeah, it's a very free outfit. Yep. And from here, meanwhile... You know, Galactus is wondering where the Silver Surfer is. He doesn't pay much attention to the Fantastic Four. If they attack him, he basically stops the attack. But that's about it. Cut from there to the Silver Surfer, who has collapsed after being hit by the thing. And he just happens to have landed on Alicia Master's skylight. And she starts talking to him. And she senses a certain amount of nobility within him. But from here, Galactus starts setting up his equipment to devour the planet and consume its energy while Alicia is still working with the Silver Surfer and trying to understand his motives and why he's doing what he does. So when the Fantastic Four are fighting the original Punisher, which is a rather... <laughs> Punisher Mark I. <laughs> yep, it's uh, very much a Kirby robot design. He's a robot that is owned and controlled by Galactus and comes in to help 
defend Galactus as he's doing what he needs to do. It's a very like a like if a frog were a bodybuilder kind of design. It's just it's just very very stout, but it 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 it, radi- it shows power. It's like this little powerful, really really strong machine. It's gonna get rid of these gnats that are bothering Galactus. Yep. And when the Human Torch is ready to go after him again, he gets stopped by the Watcher, who sends him to another part of the space-time continuum. To go get the Deus Ex Machina. Yep. The Thing starts fighting the Punisher, and doesn't do all that well. In fact, the remaining three members of the Fantastic Four go up against the Punisher, and do not succeed. Mal, Alicia is starting to get through to the Silver Surfer, and he's starting to think, yeah, maybe he should oppose Galactus. And it ends with some lamentations by the Watcher. I was wondering about this new element, and maybe this will make mankind the first world ever to resist the coming of Galactus without being completely destroyed. So move here into the startling saga of the Silver Surfer, issue fifty, which wraps up the Galactus trilogy. Don't 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 miss Johnny's first day. Human Torch goes to college. Oh yeah, we'll get there. <laughs> yeah, but we've got the thing, Mister Fantastic, and the Invisible Woman are still sealed up in the container that the Punisher sealed them in, and Galactus is now wearing pants. He's got pants on again, and the Silver Surfer shows up and starts fighting Galactus and opposing him. We do find that, yeah, the Galactus basically gave Silver Surfer his power and is more powerful than the Surfer is. Meanwhile, Johnny returns with the Ultimate Nullifier, which is a weapon so powerful that even Galactus fears it. So Galactus, in the face of that weapon, disappears. As punishment to the Silver Surfer for opposing him, he traps the Silver Surfer and exiles him on Earth. He wrecks an energy barrier that everything but the Silver Surfer can pass through. And Alicia is still in love with the Thing, but the Thing assumes that, yeah, now that she's found the Silver Surfer, why would she want a monster like him? Because the Thing is extremely insecure. With good reason, but extremely dramatically insecure. Yes. And from here, we actually get what I think is a nice point, not just for continuity, but for showing different views of people in the Marvel comics universe. The Daily Bugle has published an issue saying that the publisher calls Galactus a hoax. And, you know, we get one man going, huh, how about that? The Bugle says the whole thing's a publicity stunt. And the other guy in the street says, I've learned the best thing to do is to read Jameson's editorials and believe exactly the opposite. So which is a nice thread into not just the Spider-Man continuity, but also shows that, yeah, people don't necessarily take everything that Jameson says at face value. I've, I've developed a theory about J. Jonah Jameson as a Steve Ditko creation, but this is really the time and place for it. But yeah, it's this, this, these, um, conversations about the aftermath of the Galactus thing form a nice transitional piece because then we then go and check out another character who's reading a headline about the Galactus situation. And he also sees a picture of the thing. And that takes us into the opening parts of what's going to be the next story arc but we're only on what is it page 14 of the comic so we still have a good seven or eight pages left to go and we're and we're, we're done with the story yeah just that's it page 40 14 is all about saying yeah this issue's wrapped up and laying the seeds for next issue from there we cut to i believe it's empire state university where we see the football team and one of their stars did you know the empire state mm. university is not real sadly yeah I, I I remember finding that out a few years ago. So, yeah, it's not real. Yeah. So we see that the thing lamenting what's going on is he's wandering off alone, which is also setting up issue 51. And then we see Johnny's first day on campus. He bumps into an individual named Wyatt Wingfoot, 
And as they get taken to the dean's office, you know, the dean is saying, you know what? I wanted to speak to you two individually because, well, you first, Johnny, you're this major celebrity. You're going to have additional issues attending college that others will not have because of that celebrity status. And then as he starts going on about what's special about Wyatt Wingfoot, Johnny starts daydreaming. And as he leaves, he's like, huh, I hope there's nothing important there. But in any event, this is what introduces Wyatt Wingfoot to the supporting cast of the Fantastic Four. Oh, and I should point out, I saw the caption, this is Metro College, not ESU. Oh, I apologize. Just as fictitious, though, that doesn't exist. Yeah, so Wyatt Wingfoot joins the supporting cast of Fantastic Four, and he's he's an odd character to me, because he seems to always be very minor to the story, but he keeps being brought in to do very minor things. But there's a lot of Fantastic Four I haven't read, so maybe he becomes more significant at other points. But yeah, Galactus Trilogy, two issues worth of pages, almost to the exact page count, because it was seven pages into the 48, and ended up with 14 pages into issue 50. But yeah, lots of really interesting elements brought in, and the Watcher used in his most significant role to date. So although it doesn't introduce the Watcher, it kind of makes the Watcher more of a thing. This was his most active story. Up to this point, it wasn't like, well, I shouldn't interfere, but I can set things right and send you home. Or, you know, I, I shouldn't interfere, but just let me think out loud for a moment about the complete history of the people you're about to face <laughs> while you're standing in the room. This is the, no, I'm going to protect the Earth because this thing is coming. And by this point, Watcher had a, a small handful of appearances in the mainline comics. Um, he had had his own solo series in the back of Tales of Suspense, which at first was mainly just Watcher showcasing some random sci-fi story, like, you know, was common of TV in the day where you have an MC introducing the the, character, the story of the week. But the last few installments of that series did focus more on the Watcher as a character, and he would agonize about his inability to interfere. And you get the origin of the Watcher and why they don't interfere and all this other stuff. It's a typical story of we interfered once and it went really badly, so entire race is never going to interfere again. But his attitude toward mankind would continue to be a not supposed to do this, but I'm going to do it anyway, until the Trial of the Watcher storyline in mid to late 70s Captain Marvel. Mm-hmm. Or the Trial of the Watcher around issue 400 of the Fantastic Four. That, did, he get, did he go on trial again? Yeah, well, there was actually a, a different Watcher. I believe that one was Aaron, who was kind of insane and all about interference, and all the other non-interfering Watchers had to come in and interfere with him. Dealt with the Celestial in San Francisco and all sorts of things. Okay. Is intervention considered interference? I guess it would be a subset, wouldn't it? Yep. But no, yeah, they, the Watcher's original tales seemed to... It seemed to be an attempt to take the sci-fi anthology nature that Tales to Astonish originally had. They keep telling those anthology stories but somehow tie it to the rest of Marvel continuity, as they were, though they were getting feedback from fans where they wanted something in the shared universe. The Wasp did the same thing. She would showcase random stories for a while and tell us to astonish. Yeah, and in Journey into Mystery, we'd have retellings of Norse mythology because now that's all Marvel canon, right? Now that Thor's here. So, you know, there were some of those elements, but it, I think that those Tales to Astonish things by The Watcher, which were later reprinted in the aforementioned Silver Surfer solo series, there's some decent stuff in there, but I don't think a lot of people realized that it was out there before they essentially took the same idea and used the Watcher as the host as the framing story for the What If series that came later. Yes, which 
is probably the Watcher's most significant ongoing role in Marvel is he's he's he observes the multiverse, not just our universe. Yeah. Although very off topic, my favorite Watcher appearance is in the Beyond miniseries by Dwayne McDuffie. And it's my favorite because of the way the story ends and the Watcher's involvement there. So I will say no more at this point. But it's just called Beyond? Yep. Is it have to do with the Beyonder? Kinda sorta. Okay. But yeah, it's it's recommended. Track it down. Okay. All right, so that's the the plot synopsis. The impact this had, a lot of it is, as we've said, you know, a different role for the Watcher, and yeah, introduces the Silver Surfer and Galactus. And as we've said, they both have significant roles. The Silver Surfer's solo series have totaled over two hundred issues so far. Yeah, he he's had an interesting history. Like like I said earlier, he started out as mainly a mouthpiece. He would have various adventures, but he would he would monologue incessantly <laughs> throughout them. I think his his original 18-issue miniseries, well, it wasn't meant to be miniseries, the original ongoing series that lasted 18 issues, is probably the most philosophical comic I've ever read published under the Marvel Comics banner. And its readers adored it to pieces, but it was one of the earliest examples of a Marvel cancellation because it just wasn't getting enough readers. Yeah, and it had... It had a higher page count and a higher sticker price than some of the other issue or comics on the market at the time. It was kind of experimental in that regard. It's and it ends on a cliffhanger. Yeah, it ends on a cliffhanger. I originally read it as part of the Essential Silver Surfer Volume One, but it is available on GitCorp DVD ROMs as well, and I believe a lot of them are available through Marvel Digital Unlimited. But then his next ongoing series would help to form a lot of the backbone of Marvel Cosmic. Um, it, it showcased the return of Thanos in the late 80s, early 90s, which led into, a, after being off the Marvel docket for a solid decade, almost a decade and a half, the return of Thanos and Adam Warlock. Yeah, the Silver Surfer ongoing series that he got in the late 80s, following the John Byrne one shot, so the one that we usually call Silver Surfer Volume 3, uh, also following Silver Surfer Parable, which we discussed earlier on this podcast, that ongoing series was the launching point for Infinity Gauntlet, which is still coming up in this podcast, Infinity War, Infinity Crusade, and Infinity Abyss. I think I had forgotten about Infinity Abyss. Yeah, it came several years later. And of course, there was the just Infinity, not too far back. Yeah. Although that's not Starlin, so I guess it's just conceptually related, not creator-wise. But yeah, so he's Silver Surfer has been, you know, not an A-list player maybe but he's had a very significant role in marvel history and Mm -hmm. i I want to read more of him i have not read enough and of course he was one of the original defenders well not original original but he was involved with the early version of the team yeah and when we're you know when we look at the influence this has had outside of the comics industry when they were making fantastic four stories into films if it's not called the incredibles i don't think it's a very good fantastic four film but they did recognize the importance of the story well enough that this trilogy really is the the jumping off point for the second Fantastic Four film by Fox, titled Fantastic Four Rise of the Silver Surfer. Now, the Silver Surfer is one of the few elements of that movie that I'm I'm happy with. With Lawrence Fishburne providing the voice, the way it was written, I think that was done well enough. Yeah, he was pretty he was pretty fantastic in that. Yeah. Again, off topic, but I'm not a huge fan of turning major villains with distinct appearances into clouds. But anyway, so how did you first read the story, John? Gosh, the cover of 48 is one of those covers that is just repeated and repeated in all sorts of, you know, important issues. 
in in lists of events that I've seen, the Galactus trilogy is sometimes listed as the first Marvel event. You know, uh, that that's significant to the universe as a whole. I'm trying to remember, I guess the first time I read this was in probably two thousand eight or nine when I was reading through Silver Age comics with my daughter. She and I made our way through a big swath of Fantastic Four. We got almost to a hundred. I think after I stopped reading to her because she was 10, I actually did get to the end of the Kirby run. But so that would have been my first time to read this was with her as a bedtime story. We would read comics at night. I can't remember having read it earlier than that, but I could be wrong. So yeah, Silver Age comics are so kid friendly. They're in Stanley Jack Kirby Fantastic Four is so imaginative that it, it really just kind of grabbed her imagination. I really enjoyed reading it. And I've probably read it maybe a half dozen times since then. How about you? I first read it in the Essential series. So Marvel was coming out with the Essentials. I got back into comics when I think both of these were already on the market. So when the first Spider-Man movie with Tobey Maguire came out, that's when I got back into comics. And I went out there and started just picking up all the Essentials I could, and Fantastic Four were fairly commonplace. So this would have been, oh, early 2000s. So over 10 years ago, I read it for the first time in black and white. So I didn't even notice all the coloring issues going on with Galactus until <laughs> I got the Get Corp DVD-ROMs. Which, to reiterate, his penciling, Jack Kirby's art on him was consistent across all three issues. Um, the colorist or colorist team were just um, being creative, making changes as they went. Yeah, I I almost get the impression that the people who colored uh, issue 49 had not seen the way the last page of 48 was colored. And just kind of did their own thing. Right. Because that's just so far removed. It wasn't even like a gradual shift. There wasn't any text explaining it. It was just, oh, look, now he's purple. My vague impression of colorists at this time was that there weren't colorist credits because there weren't really individual colorists. The The color job was considered the the one closest to the actual mechanical production of the of the uh, comic. And so it was just it was just given to a group. Yeah, unfortunately, I don't know how it was done in the industry or what was going on. I do know that there's some cases, like at this point, Neil Adams was basically deciding the colors of his works because they had, you know, numbered colors in the color palette, and he would sort of set it up as paint by numbers. So he'd send it off to people saying, this should be color 27, this should be color 42, this should be, you know, and so forth. So there's some flexibility, but I, if that level of control had been available to Jack Kirby, I believe he would have exercised it. So that may be a difference between Marvel and DC thing. That may have been something that DC did just for Neil Adams because he was selling so well compared to other artists. But in any event, yeah, I don't believe Jet Kirby would have consciously chosen to have dramatically different colors for Galactus with no mention of why it's happening. Yeah, he would have had something in there if he meant Galactus to change colors to have a story-based reason for him to change colors. Right. As it is, you know, we get the the red and green for one big final splash page panel, and then we get purple and brownish tunic and then we get the same color scheme with pants and the look he has in issue 50 is essentially the look he would have forever yeah yeah for the most part it, it is good and i mean reading this for the first time as i said reading it in context knowing what was coming when i was aware of this story for decades before i read it when i was in junior high collecting comics for the first time i was also collecting marvel cards and that first series of marvel cards had marvel milestones and the galactus trilogy made the list so I knew that the Silver Surfer and Galactus appeared for the first time in issues 48, 49, and 50, years before I actually read those issues. Yeah, I think that's just one of those facts that 
comic fans just know because right, it's all over the cards. It's 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 everywhere. Yeah, it's one of those things that we just get exposed to when it picks up. And I don't know, depending on how you read it, Silver Age comics, so 1960s comics, do not read the same way that comics read today. The industry has changed, especially on the distribution end. Now it is relatively easy for you to go to your local comic shop and say, I want every single issue of this title, and then that happens. That wasn't the case then. There was, as I said, no forethought about collected editions because they were not at all in the plan. Right. And if they did, they were often taking like, you know, scissors and glue and tape and readjusting and reshaping the issues. Actually having to take to take published comics and damage them to recreate reprints. Yeah. And that's that's largely how the comics industry started. I mean, you go back to the the thirties, those original Superman strips were formatted as a daily newspaper strip that were rearranged and cut and pasted together to make comic book pages. You know, because the money was in the daily newspaper strips, so that's what Siegel and Schuster were doing, and they only settled for comics when they couldn't get it in newspapers right away. It's weird how things flip-flop over time. Oh, very much so. Now people want to get out of the newspapers and onto the web, because newspapers are dying in print. Yeah, yeah. And web comics are exceedingly easy to do. Well, I mean, assuming you have the creative force, but the actual production of it is exceedingly easy to do. You might not get noticed very easily very, very, for very long, but you, you, can, you can put it out there. Yeah, the publication step is easy. It's the marketing that's a pain. Yeah, so reading it sounds like as John and I did, I think it may be easier to appreciate if you start from Fantastic Four number one and build up to it than if you were to go in cold and start with issue 48. Yeah, and there's, there's a lot of good stuff in here. I mean, issues, 38, issues 30 to 60 of Fantastic Four are one of the greatest things that Marvel has ever created. I, I, I don't know why there's not more of it on this list, but the the ongoing serial story and the various arcs that would weave in and out of the narrative, there, there's so much imagination here. We just came out of the Inhumans, and they're, you know, they're pretty big in Marvel right now. Marvel's really pushing them. Mm-hmm. They're featured in the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. TV show. They're going to have their own film in a few years, and they have their start in the issues just preceding this. But again, it, it's that serial storytelling. So if you do start at issue one and work your way through, by the time you get to issues 48 through 50, you've, you're almost hitting a cornerstone of, of things you've done so far. And it continues to spin into new places after this. Oh, yeah. Following this, we get the Black Panther. We get more Inhumans. We get Doctor Doom stealing Silver Surfer's powers, which was another element that showed up in that second film. Prior to this, we have one of my favorite Fantastic Four stories, possibly because I'm such a Daredevil nut, where the Fantastic Four lose their powers and Daredevil has to help them break into the Baxter building, which is then under the control of Doctor Doom. It's just, yeah, this is one of the high points in a very strong run. If you don't have access to the issues, I would recommend tracking down the Fantastic cast, hosted by Andrew Leyland and Stephen Lacey, both of whom have already appeared on this podcast and both of whom will appear again. They've can take you issue by issue. They've now finished the Lee Kirby run and have gone beyond that, but it's it's all there. So if you don't have access to the issues, you can listen to their recaps and their discussions of it because it's, as I said, these are great issues that are worth reading, but if you do choose to jump in on issue 48, just keep in mind the first seven issues, or the first seven pages of the first issue, I'm sorry, they are not part of the storyline that you're there for. That's wrapping up the previous story because of the the structure that they had in serialized storytelling, they did not want to give you a good jumping off point. 
they wanted to have already started the next story to give you a hook to come back again. Which, you know, it was really working for them. I would think that with the distribution issues and just how how less standardized the the industry was at the time compared to now, I would think that this kind of storytelling would be off-putting to a lot of people. But it was really, really working for them. And Mm -hmm. readers were responding. There There were a contingent. There were the vocal minority who complained about continued stories and how they couldn't get all the parts or didn't want to have to wait a month to find out what happened next. They want to have a nice resolution at the end. But a lot of people really responded to this continued story uh, format. Occasionally, Marvel would try to respond to the vocal minority by, you know, cutting back on continued stories. But that would usually last an issue. And then the next one mm-hmm. would be a two-parter. And then they're off the wagon again. Yeah, I think the... the- I think the longest I saw the manage that was three months, and a lot of that, I just said it was the vocal minority that complained about the continued storytelling, and every time they tried to to respond to that, because all they knew is they were getting a lot of letters saying, man, these continued stories suck, I can't get the next issue, those would grossly outnumber the ones that say, hey, I love the continued storytelling and the large tapestries, so they make the shift to where they think their readers are, then all the other people who are upset right in because people are much more upset or much more inclined to voice their opinions when they're upset than when they're happy. And, you know, when they make all the other people upset and get those issues coming in, they're like, oh, okay, that was a problem and we should stick with serialized. <laughs> Let's not do that again. Yeah. And then, you know, it'd be a few years before they tried again and saying, hey, maybe the market's changed. Maybe people do want serialized story or do want individual stories again. And now... If you get someone like Dan Slott, who consistently writes two or three issue stories, people consider that short. Right. Well, because nowadays, telling a a six-issue, nicely formatted for the trade story arc tends to be the standard, with lots of variation and and, and departure from that standard. But it does seem to feel like the standard expectation nowadays. Yeah. And it, it is a different type of storytelling. And I personally enjoy having you know, the five or six issues, because then your character moments can be full scenes with dialogue and subtlety, as opposed to, you know, one very expositional line of dialogue shouted in the middle of battle, right. which is the recourse they had to do back in the the Kirby and Ditko era, when you're trying to fit, you know, your Avengers as one story per issue, you've got, you know, anywhere from four to six members of the team to showcase. It's like, well, as you know, I am Tony Stark's bodyguard, and I am, you know, very good with transistors. In the same panels, the thought balloon saying, if only they knew I'm really Tony Stark. <laughs> it became rather heavy handed just because they didn't have the space. Now they do. So I would say that this is very easy to recommend reading. Just be aware it's from a different era where there were different expectations of and for the readers. So let's move on to the portion of the podcast that I have so blatantly stolen from Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast that everybody should be listening to. They're doing a fantastic job over there where we look for any messages, morals, and meanings that we get coming out of the story. So I I think one of the most blatant ones is Silver Surfer's decision to go against Galactus. I think that that's probably one of the greater uh, moments of the story, where he realizes, you know, Galactus is not just eating planets, he's eating people. How he's gone so long without realizing this before? And if Watu's words are to be taken as literal and not hyperbole, how all the other heralds of Galactus have never realized this before is, is, is a bit, you know, something, something comics kind of a thing. But he does see that he needs to fight 
for the rights of the individual person. These aren't mm-hmm. cattle, in other words, that are being consumed with very little thought for themselves. These are these are individuals with sentient, you know, life. Oh yes, and that shift in attitude that is one of the things addressed in his other ongoing series, his longest lasting one. They did find out that uh, when Galactus gave him his powers, he also eliminated his conscious and did some other emotional tampering to keep him on task as part of standard operating procedure. So that there is that element, but yeah, it would be decades before we'd get that explanation. And they talked specifically about why his interactions with Alicia broke through that when other interactions didn't. So that none of that is addressed here, but we do eventually get a quasi-retcon explanation. And I say quasi-retcon because it wasn't really rewriting history. It was more of the, well, everything you saw happened exactly the way you you saw it, but here's the other elements that we didn't know about at the time kind of retcon. Right. Which to me are, are my favorite kinds of retcons. Just yeah, fill, filling in background knowledge. Yeah. We're not trying to rewrite someone else's work. We're just trying to say, well, you know, this is probably what they had in mind. Let's just make it work. Like the X-Men classic series. Yeah. Yeah. Very much like that. So, yeah. But I would agree. That's really the only message that we have here is just, you know, stand up for what's right, regardless of the situation. Because that's what the Silver Surfer had to do was recognize that, yeah, every life is worthwhile. And so what if this is my job and Galactus is that powerful? I need to do what's right, even if it costs me my life. If it were Reed Richards deciding what the message was here, it would be, lead me to my science. At, at times, yeah. <laughs> he grows a beard very quickly in this story. I don't know exactly how long they are watching Galactus build the hoobajoob on top of the tower, but all of a sudden, Reed Richards is unshaven, and I don't know how that happened. <laughs> yeah, that's the, the standard Kirby shorthand for he's been at it a long time, and he's just been wrapped up in his lab. Oh, but, but you know, he, he has stretching powers, Blaine. He can just make mm-hmm. his beard hairs stretch out longer. He could, although I think that has some concentration, but who knows, because at the same time, the stretching powers have got to make shaving really brutal. (laughs) I would not want to have to shave that face. No, no. You need a flexible razor. Yeah. And if the stretching powers apply to the hair as well, what are you using to cut them? Mm. That would imply sensation in the hair, and that's, that's, that's not worth thinking about. Yeah, well, I'm just wondering, how do you cut them off rather than just stretch those hairs out by... As you drag the razor along. (laughs) Oh, yeah. You slice it, but instead you actually just grab the hair and pull it. (laughs) Yeah. That's just... That'd be bad. Yeah, we saw uh, Bill Nye already explain how Superman shaves. He's got to get on Reed Richards now. I have not seen that. I know what I'm looking up on YouTube whenever we're done here. Oh, yeah. There was a whole ad campaign that came up with Man of Steel. Oh, fun. Because the trailers revealed that he he had a beard at one point and then not later, and they had a variety of people trying to explain how he shaves. Bill Nye, Kevin Smith, and a number of others were part of that ad campaign. Oh, that's neat. Yeah, because I believe Gillette was the sponsor. I was just talk- I was just thinking about the whole thing that about Man of Steel having shaven, and because I heard somebody asking that question, and I I realized I didn't have an answer because I never talked about it in the movie. And of course, I I read so much Silver Age Superman where the man cannot shave; it is impossible for Superman to shave um, whenever he's powered. He can do it whenever he's depowered under Red Sun or whatever, but he can't. He, not even he, can cut his own hair or shave whenever he's powered. Yeah, I tended to prefer the explanation I saw where Kryptonians just don't grow facial hair. (laughs) But then there's the hair on his head. But anyway, back to the Fantastic Four. So I think all that leaves us with is discussing why we feel it landed at this point in the rankings. Why did this end up at spot number 23? Uh, if, If somebody told me that this was spot 23 on the 75 list... I would have no trouble accepting that. 
it's it's a hugely important story to Marvel continuity as a whole. It's a well done and enjoyable read as well. Why it's here compared to some other neighboring items that gets a bit more questionable, but that's more because of the neighboring items being present than it is for this being here. So yeah. Mm-hmm. Top twenty five original Galactus story, I have no problems with that. That just makes sense to me. Yeah, you you couldn't easily make a case for this being higher on the list. I mean, the three elements we usually look at are entertainment value, which this has. This is some of the best of the 60s. We talk about the significance on continuity, Silver Surfer, Galactus, you know, a, a new role for the Watcher. It's got that. And then, yeah, the final one, the, the messages and morals, it's not really a message book, but that's there. So if you want to look for deeper meanings to take something away from it, that's not hard to do. Yeah, there there is a very minor moral morality play involved in the story. It's not the it's not the focus of the story, but it is involved. It is, and if it's not there, the story doesn't work because without the Human Torch turning it around, or sorry, without the Silver Surfer changing his mind and turning things around, we don't have a story. Like so, it's not it's not the emphasis. It doesn't get preachy, but it is a vital plot point. So, do you have any closing thoughts on this story? I just, if if you haven't read it, it's worth reading. Pick it up, realize that you're coming in the middle of something and, and keep on going with it. But it's it's definitely worth reading at least once. It's one of the, uh, other than the introductions of all of the characters, it's probably the most significant story of its era. And and yeah, it's it's something highly recommend getting a hold of. Yeah, absolutely. Very easy to recommend this. So from there, John, again, thank you for joining us. Would you like to remind people where they can find your own podcast online? No. Yes. Yes, I would. (laughs) I do a podcast with my teenage daughter, Lily, uh, called Avengers Inspirations, which has had occasionally spotty production schedules because she is a middle school student and I'm a uh, school teacher. And sometimes that just gets in the way of us doing recording or me doing editing. But as we record, I have been currently in the, in, the, in a spot of getting episodes out on a regular basis. So Avengers Inspirations is a Marvel Cinematic Universe and Silver Age Marvel podcast where we look at the characters in the MCU, the various installments in film and TV, and the comics that involve those characters. You can find that at the complete Marvel Reading Order website under the Podcasts tab or the complete Marvel Reading Order podcast feed in iTunes and other places. Okay. All right. So from there, for those of you who are following along at home, we've got another large reading assignment for you for next week. We will be dealing with X-Men Age of Apocalypse. It has been collected in an omnibus hardcover in the complete Age of Apocalypse four-volume paperback collection, and... Some, but not all, of the issues have been reprinted in both Marvel Digital Unlimited and Comixology. Now, I should point out that the four-volume paperback collection and the omnibus hardcover actually do have slightly different issue content. The omnibus hardcover is the one I have access to, so that's the one we'll be dealing with. There's a couple issues of, you know, X-Men Chronicles and such that are in paperback that are not in the hardcover. And the Chronicles, I recall, because that one is on Marvel Digital Limited, so probably we'll be doing that in addition. But the focus will be on the hardcover contents. And with over 40 issues in that story, we're probably not going to be taking this issue by issue. We're going to be, you know, any plot synopsis will be focused more on the individual miniseries and the roles that they play. 
because the individual miniseries have been accurately reproduced. It's just the, you know, here's how the status quo got this way issues that are missing. So in the meantime, please feel free to rate this and any other shows that you listen to on iTunes, Stitcher, whatever podcatcher you listen to or you make use of. It really does help the shows get noticed. Share the show with friends if you think they'd be interested. You can take a look at the Facebook discussion forum that we have for it. And finally, thank you for listening. Okay, I'm going to do the promo now. Really? Finally. Okay, let's do the promo. What do you mean, let's do the promo? I'm the one who has to do it. Well, get on with it then. Okay, okay, here we go. Iron Man. The Incredible Hulk. The Mighty Thor. The Captain America. Wow. Being dramatic there, aren't we? Do, do you think it's too much? Should I back off? No, 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 you're fine. You, you're good. Okay. You've seen the Earth's mightiest heroes in the Avengers franchise of films. Now you can enjoy the stories that have inspired those films through the magic of comic podcasting. Magic of podcasting? You sure about that one? Well, yeah, because, you know, we're awesome. Like, magic. Only without actually seeing any magical things. Just go with it, go with it, go with it. Okay. Don't forget to tell them what we're actually doing on the show. Oh, oh yeah, okay. So join Lily Wilson, the awesomest teenage comics fan in the world, Mm -hmm. as her father takes her through all the early comics that feature characters from the Avengers franchise of films. And some that aren't in those films yet, but will be. Because we started with the anime before we had a whole film. Oh, well, yeah. And don't forget Spider-Man. He's not looking at Avenger, but he's there. Oh, okay. So, um, maybe it should be that feature characters that have been, are currently, or will one day be, in the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe. Better. And where should they go not see this magical podcasty goodness? New episodes can be found... <coughs> do I have to do the voice? Yes, you do. Okay, okay. New episodes can be found at the Complete Marvel Reading Order website, cmro.travis-starns.com, and clicking under the Podcasts tab. Or on iTunes by searching Complete Marvel Reading Order, or just search for the name of the show itself. Um, Dad... Don't you think we should actually say the name of our show? Oh. Yeah! Avengers! Inspirations! Podcast! Listen and stuff. Yeah, good job, Dad. Thank you!